Now, if you have your Bibles, flip open to the book of Haggai. And Haggai is in a book uh, in the Old Testament known as a portion of the scriptures known as the prophets. And in the Old Testament, there are five divisions. There are the Pentateuchs, those are the first five books of the Bible. There are the histories, which recount the history of Israel. There's the writings, which are some poems and uh, thoughts of wisdom. And then there are the prophets. And that's the part of the Bible that Haggai is in. And the best way to find it, I talked about this last week, is you actually start in the New Testament in the book of Matthew. Then you work back two chapters and you're going to land yourself plop right there in Haggai. Now, before we get started, I just want to ask a diagnostic question here. How many people in here, how many people in here, their life is working the way or is acting out in the way that they thought it would when they were 12 years old. If you can show me, show me the hands. So we have one 12 year old, which is good. Okay. All right. The reason I mention that is because today we're in Haggai's second prophecy. And remember last week he gave us a challenge. Haggai gave us a challenge of repentance. It was repent, turn back to God to flip our priorities and build our life on God, not our own priorities. This week, he gives us a challenge of comfort. He wants to give us comfort for people like us whose life has not turned out the way that we thought it was going to. So this is Haggai chapter two. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be getting in verse one, reading through verse nine. This is the word of the Lord. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when I came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. That's the word of God. So when I was younger, I remember one specific baseball game that I had to play. It was, it was the game that I remember most of all. And it's not because of anything that happened during the game. It's because uh, we were playing this team known as the Cherry Creek Bruins in Steamboat Springs during a tournament. And there was nothing especially remarkable about the Cherry Creek Bruins other than on that team was Jack Elway, who was the son of my childhood hero, John Elway. And so as we're going to the game, We pull up and my parents dropped me off at the back of a parking lot. And this parking lot's about 100 yards. And then there was a football field, which, you know, was about another 100 yards. And then there was a steep hill that was about 50 feet or so. So my parents dropped me off at the back of this parking lot. And I'm walking through the parking lot about halfway through 
two coaches from the Cherry Creek Bruins sidle up next to me and they're just asking us questions. And me and my friend, David, where you kind of have our head down and we're, they're asking us questions like, hey, how's your season going? How are you enjoying the tournament? And we didn't really think anything of it. So we walked past the football field, went down the hill and we went our separate ways. Well, the game starts and it's about the third inning. You start hearing whispers among everybody in the dugout and you start hearing whispers in the crowd because people finally realize, oh, John Elway is here. He's sitting right there. He's wearing a hat and everybody knows that it's him. So his cover has been blown, right? And so after the game, I'm super excited. I run up. I don't even remember what the score of the game was. That's irrelevant. I run up to my parents and I'm asking him, can I go meet John Elway? There he is. He's right over there. I want to get his autograph. My parents say, what are you talking about? You already talked to John Elway. I said, no, I have not talked to John Elway. They said, yeah, you did. You were talking to him all the way when you walked to the field. You didn't know that was John Elway? <laughs> so I expected John Elway to show up in blue jeans. You know, I didn't expect him to uh, show up in blue jeans or with a pullover, with a baseball hat, and with a five o'clock shadow. I actually kind of expected him, you know, flowing locks, number seven jersey, full padding, two Super Bowl trophies <laughs> on his shoulder. See, and here's the point, right? I had, I had an expectation. I had an expectation of who John Elway should be and how he should look. But because of that, I actually missed him when he was right in front of my eyes. I'm, many, I'm sure many of us have stories of unmet expectations, right? Our 12-year-old self would show up and they would probably meet us and they would be probably severely disappointed if you're like me. Or they would just be really be scratching their head like, you turned out like that? You know, I'm sure many of us have stories of unmet expectations too. Maybe you expected to go on a summer vacation this summer. You know, you wanted to go to Arizona or California. I don't know why you would want to go to somewhere that's hotter than it is here, but maybe that's where you wanted to go. But, you know, a washing machine broke or some financial thing came about and now you're here instead. Or maybe you're like me. For 24 years, you were so eager and you expected Chipotle to come out with queso. And then when they came out with it, it far fell below your expectations, right? I was recently, I was actually recently reading a, uh, a food blogger's website and they were doing live tweets of people when they tried Chipotle's queso for the first time. One person put this, Chipotle's queso is actually a crime against cheese. <laughs> and it's true. Or Bitcoin right? You didn't think Bitcoin was a real thing. You're like, what is that cryptocurrency that's made up? No, it's, apparently it's not. It's over $10,000 now, right? So these things are examples of small things. What about big things? Recently, I just got a text message from my friend, Pat. Pat and I were childhood friends, really good friends. And he was expecting twins. My wife and I are expecting twins. We were due in September. They were due in October, and he texted me during their 20-week ultrasound. They found out that neither of their children had a heartbeat. We go one level deeper. How many of you have feelings that God hasn't met your expectations? God hasn't shown up. Maybe you have a son or a daughter that doesn't follow Jesus, right? You've, you've prayed for him. You've prayed for years. You've You've talked to them for years, you've encouraged them and, and they just have, seem to have no interest. You know, there's, there's kind of like whole films with kind of this genre of God disappointing. Now, I recently watched a film where it was about a girl whose mother has cancer and there's one scene where she's just fervently praying to God. She's looking up at the ceiling, praying, God, will you please heal my mom of cancer? 
And the scene ends with her rolling over under her side, falling asleep without hearing anything from God and then waking up the next morning to find that her mom was still sick with her illness. Maybe that's you this morning. And I mention that because immediately here in, in Haggai, we, we see a similar situation. Verses one through three, we're told, just like last week, Haggai is sent to God's people, right? Haggai is sent again to speak to Zerubbabel, who's the governor of Judah, to Joshua, who's the high priest, and now to all the remnant of the people who've been brought back from exile, 50,000 people back from exile in Babylon, and he's sent to ask them questions. Remember last week, it was questions of flipping your priorities. It was a challenge to flip. And now here, he's giving instead words of comfort. And he's going to ask them the question about expectations and discouragement. See, because they're building the temple, but they find themselves discouraged. And we find out why beginning in verse 2. Haggai says, speak now. To Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, Denver is a city of transplants, okay? So, who here was around in the year 2000? We had a lot in the first service. Fewer, fewer this service. In 2000, you know, there was a tragedy that happened in 2000. Mile High Stadium, the greatest football stadium of all time, was taken down, right? And you might not know this about Mile High Stadium. Mile High Stadium was made of steel and other metal. And the cool thing about that is that when you were in the stadium, what Broncos fans did is they stamped their feet. And it was known as the thunder, right? And, and if you were in Mile High Stadium, I remember sitting there as a six-year-old and, six-year and actually being afraid because you were thinking, oh my goodness, this thing is shaking so much. This, this, this stadium is going to fall down. And it struck fear in me and in the hearts of opponents, right? And then they built Invesco Field shortly thereafter. And even though it was updated and had new features, it was still missing something crucial. It was missing the thunder. And people just said, hey, that was never like that old stadium. And that's similar here. The people who are gathered here in Jerusalem, they've been building the temple, right? They've been building God's temple. And they remember the first temple that Solomon built. It was a temple that had pillars that were more than 50 feet high. And, and it had fine wood from all over the ancient world. And there was masterful artists who, who decorated it. In fact, we're going to put a picture of uh, the temple up here. That's what the temple looked like in Solomon's day. And, and let me just give you some perspective of how great this temple was. That inner sanctuary, that's the area you see those winged things that are on the left-hand side of the picture, that's the inner sanctuary known as the Holy of Holies. We're told that in that inner sanctuary alone, just the walls of that sanctuary had 600 talents of gold. Now, let me give you some perspective. One talent is the equivalent of 20 years wages for an average worker. And this had 600. And just to add more perspective, in Littleton, the average mean income of a person is $62,000. Multiply that by 20 years, and that's one talent. This had 600. So the older people of Judah who had seen this outward glory of the first temple, they're now looking at the temple that they're building. They've laid the foundations, and they're just disappointed. They're saying, there's no way what we're going to build is as good as that temple. And we get a sense of their discouragement, actually, in another book, the book of Ezra, where it gives the story of these returning exiles and it's put like this. 
When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though they shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. What do we do with unmet expectations? These people are thinking, what we're building will never meet the expectations of that former temple. What we're doing right now, it seems so useless. It seems so pointless. What do we do with these unmet expectations? What about your life, the unmet expectations in your life? What does God say to us in those? Well, God has three words for us this morning through Haggai, and they're these. In the face of unmet expectations, stop, look, and listen. This isn't crossing a street, right? This is, this is Haggai. Stop, look, and listen. Stop and look back to God's faithfulness and also stop and listen to his promises for the future. That's where we're going this morning. So let's look at that first point that Haggai tells about us, tells us to look forward to. Stop and look back at my faithfulness. So I have two children, Eli and McLean, and they're four and two, and they used to love the game peekaboo, right? They love the game peekaboo. And I actually uh, decided to research this. There's a scientific reason that children love peekaboo. And the reason is this. Children, when they see something hidden, they actually think that it's not there, right? So when you have a blanket and you put it over your head before a child, they literally think that you have disappeared. You've just performed the greatest magic trick that you could possibly do, right? They think you're there one moment, but then you cover yourself and then you're not there. And that's the same situation for the people of Judah. They've started building the temple. They saw the former glory though. And they think there is no way God could be in this. There's absolutely no way that God could be working right now. And and they're starting to ask, is God even with us? What are we doing? Is building the temple even worth it? We'll never have a temple as great as Solomon's. So God sends Haggai with this word of encouragement. He goes to encourage them saying these words, yet now, Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. See, what he's saying is, hey, God is at work even when you can't see him, even when it's not what you expect. And in order to illustrate that point, do you notice what he does? He references back to Egypt. Verse five, work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when I came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. So what Haggai is doing is he is saying, there is a parallel here. There's a parallel. Israel and Judah are in a similar situation. Just as God took Israel out of Egypt and brought them to a promised land, God is saying with you, Judah, I am also taking you from Babylon and bringing you into the promised land to build my temple. And here's the key, right? Here's the key. Because in the middle of the story of Israel, when they were being brought out of Egypt, there was something that absolutely no Israelite expected. 
See, they thought God was going to take them from Egypt and then plop them right into the middle of the promised land. But do you remember what happened in between Egypt and the promised land? You remember the story? 40 years of wilderness. 40 years of wilderness. 40 years of unmet expectations. 40 years of disappointment, 40 years of hardship, 40 years of trial, 40 years of hunger and thirst. And I'm only 29, right? (laughs) I've only lived three quarters of that amount. Have you ever wondered, have you ever been discouraged and wondered, God, why, why is marriage so hard? Have you ever wondered why, why did I lose my job? I understand what it means to lose a job. I actually lost the very first job I ever had. It wasn't as a pastor, I promise, okay? (laughs) Why is it that when I follow God and I try and turn away from my sin, I try and turn away from lust, or I try and turn away from gossip, or I try and turn away from lying, it's still so hard. I continue to work and I work and I work and I just can't seem to make any progress. God, are you even with me? Are you even there? Are you even working to change me? And to the people in Haggai's day, God is saying, you are in the same position as Israel when I brought them out of Egypt. Just as I was with them and led them through the wilderness for 40 years, I am with you as you live through unmet expectations and disappointment. And I do it for a purpose. I actually have a purpose in mind. I just saw uh, The Lion King. I recommend it, by the way. The new Lion King, my wife doesn't. Um, So we're a split household. And my favorite characters in The Lion King are Timon and Pumbaa, right? And remember Timon and Pumbaa's famous saying, what was it? Hakuna Matata. It means no worries. And they kind of expound upon this in the movie. Uh, In the movie, they expound upon what Hakuna Matata means. And they, they say it like this. Hakuna Matata means life is meaningless. Life is just a line. It's not a circle of life. There's no overarching purpose or anything like that. Life is a line. You pop in one moment and then there's, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, and then you die, and then you plop off the radar. And they said that in between that time that you're alive, everything that happens is meaningless. Everything that you do is pointless. Changing your kid's diapers has no overarching purpose. Turning away from sin and turning to God, no absolute purpose. Instead, self-indulgence. A loss of your job, no purpose. And see, Judah thought that their purpose, they thought that their mission was, we're going to build this this great temple for God. We're going to do great things for God. We're going to make all the surrounding people think, look how great our God is. And everybody's going to look at us and think we did such an amazing job. But what Haggai is saying is the purpose that God actually has for you is not to lead you into that glory, but to actually lead you through the wilderness. Because what God is ultimately doing is he wants to have a relationship with you. That's God's purpose, to have a relationship with you where you are now dependent on God. Now, I can think of no story that illustrates this better than the story of Joni Erickson Tata. If you know Joni Erickson Tata or if you don't know her, I encourage you, go buy every single book that she's written and read it from front cover to back cover and then come talk to me. Joni Erickson Tata was a collegiate caliber swimmer and a tennis player And in high school, she was even voted best athlete of her senior class. And reflecting back on her time as an athlete in college, she said, that was my life's purpose. I had found my niche, my life. 
I was an athlete and it defined everything about me, even the major I planned declaring on college. But one month after her high school graduation, Tata and a group of her friends, they got on a raft and they went out into the middle of the Chesapeake Bay and the Chesapeake Bay is not very deep. Tata, in order to attempt, she tried to do this, she tried to pull off an inward pike dive off of her raft into the shallows of the Chesapeake Bay. And she, recounting back at this, said this, I'd assumed I could pull out of the pike at any time. But when my head crunched against the sandy bottom, my arms and legs went limp. When they pulled my paralyzed body on shore, I kept thinking, what a stupid dive, why did I do it? And months later, when the permanence of my paralysis began to sink in, I felt that my life was over. In other words, what Tato was saying is, God had to break her of her greatest expectation in order to show her her greatest need, which was to live in a dependent relationship upon God. She needed the wheelchair and insert wilderness in order to show her that what she needed was God and God alone, that only he could satisfy. And she puts it like this when she recounts that story. She says this, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Through disappointment and discouragement, God is showing me that he is more concerned with conforming me to the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ, than leaving me in my comfort zones. God is more interested in my inward qualities than outward circumstances. Things like refining my faith, humbling my heart, cleaning my thought life, and strengthening my character. My wheelchair, and you can put in wilderness in that spot, was the key to seeing all this happen. So here I sit, glad that I have not been healed on the outside, but glad that I've been healed on the inside, healed from my own self-centered wants and wishes, healed from thinking I can live a life apart from dependency on God. And, and this is so hard for us, right? This is so hard for us. See, do you realize what the main message of Haggai in this passage is? The main message of Haggai is this right here. Be strong. I am with you through the wilderness. I am with you to make you more dependent on me and to make you look more like my son, Jesus. That's the main message of Haggai. But we live in a culture, right, that says, no, you must be happy. You must be happy. Happiness is what we deserve. Happiness is what we need. Happy meals, happy X, happy Y, happy Z, right? But, but God is actually saying the most important thing you have and the most important thing you need is a relationship with me. And the main thing I want to accomplish in your relationship is not to make you happy, but to make you holy, to make you more and more like my son, Jesus. And just as Jesus was dependent on his heavenly father in all things, we too are being made like Jesus to rely on our father and depend on him in all things. That's why God leads us to the wilderness. That's why God leads us to disappointment. That's why God leads us to unmet expectations. You guys know Michelangelo? Michelangelo, the famous sculptor. He was once asked one time, how did you get the inspiration for David? David is so perfectly crafted. He's so perfectly symmetrical. It's the most wonderful piece of art. You know what his response was? Yeah, I just chipped away the parts that weren't David. <laughs> and see, that's what God is doing in the wilderness. He is chipping away the parts of us that are not dependent on God in order to make us more like Jesus. God is slowly and progressively chipping away every single person who puts their faith in Jesus to tell them, Jesus is who you need to become more like. 
So God's encouragement to us is be strong, be strong, be strong. I am with you. I have a purpose. No matter what you're going through, whatever struggle you find yourself in, in the midst of disappointment, your life as you know it, how it's not met your expectations, God is with you and he, has do, and he is with you for a purpose to change you into the likeness of his son, Jesus. And, and remember this, right? Remember last week we talked about what the temple signified. The temple signified Jesus who was to come. And ultimately we know that Jesus himself, the reason we can trust that God is gonna be faithful through the wilderness because we know that Jesus himself came as nobody expected. Jesus came as a guy born of a virgin, born in Nazareth, born in the backwater of Galilee. He came as nobody expected. He came in a lowly form. Everybody expected him to come in glory, right? They thought, oh, here's, here's Jesus. Here's the Messiah. He's going to come and he's going to eradicate all of our promises and he's going to bring God's kingdom now. He's going to bring glory now. He's going to bring our happiness now. He's going to bring fulfillment now. But Jesus came and he was lowly. He came to die for those who were suffering, to die for those who were discouraged, to die for those in their sins. Jesus himself shed his blood on the cross, not because he is indifferent to our pain and suffering, but he came to identify with our pain and our suffering. The reason we can trust God in the wilderness through our hardship and our unmet expectations is we know Jesus bore those on himself. Jesus was known as a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, stricken. He took on the cross all of our shame, all of our sin, all of our pain. He took it all upon himself and he did it to show us that he is faithful. Through our life, whatever we're going through, he's showing us on the cross, I earned, I earned the ability to make you more like myself. And that's what Jesus is doing in our lives. That's just my first point. <laughs> so first, stop and look back to God's faithfulness in the face of unmet expectations. But God has a second thing that he wants us to do, to also stop and listen to his future promises. So it's not just look back to what I did in the past. Now, listen to what I'm going to do in the future. And we see it beginning in verse 6. Haggai brings this message. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that all the treasures of the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. So the image that Haggai is working with there when he says that God will one day come and shake the nations and shake the heavens and the earth is it's a reference back to the process of threshing in the Old Testament. So they would gather wheat. The people who were farmers would gather wheat and what they would do is they would grab this wheat and they would slam it against something hard in order to break all the wheat and all the seed off from the wheat stock. And in this big pile, there would be this accumulation of wheat and chaff. And what they would do is they'd pick it up, they'd put it into a bowl, they'd start tossing it into the air. They're tossing it into the air and a wind would come by and that wind would drive away the chaff because it was light and all that would be left is the wheat. 
So what God is saying here is he is going to winnow. He is going to shake the heavens and the earth, all the nations in judgment. That's what he's going to do one day. It's kind of like a schoolyard bully. Remember Billy from uh, elementary school? Remember Billy, right? He'd come up, he'd grab your ankles, he'd turn you upside down and shake you. And then all of your coins would come out. He'd grab all your quarters and he'd have lunch money and you'd go home hungry. Remember that? See, God is saying the same thing here. Verse eight, God is saying the silver is mine. The gold is mine. You are looking at this temple now and you're thinking, there is no glory in this temple. It's just, it's just this shack. It's not as beautiful as God's temple. What God is saying is, don't you realize I own the heavens and the earth. I own the wealth of the nations. Silver and gold are nothing to me. I created silver and gold. I created the mountains. I created all the glory of the universe and they are mine. And in one day, in the future, in a little while, a little while longer, I am going like a schoolyard bully to shake all things and all of the wealth of the nations will come trickling down. All the glory of the nations will come trickling down. And God is saying he will one day scoop that up and he will bring it to us and meet all of our unmet expectations and give us all the glory and the desire desires and the hopes that we have in this life. God is going to accumulate those things like wheat and he's going to fill this house with glory more than the former house. And, and it's important to remember, right? We talked about this last week that prophets do sometimes predict the future and that's exactly what's going on here. Haggai is predicting the future. And it's important to remember in in prophecy, right, there are three horizons. You can think of it this way. We live in Colorado, right? So the first horizon is the, is the plains. The second horizon is the foothills. And then the third horizon is the mountains. So the plains is God fulfilling this prophecy immediately during our time, during the time of Haggai. The second horizon, the foothills, is God fulfilling that prophecy during the time of Jesus' first coming. And then the mountain the third horizon is God fulfilling it when Jesus promises to come again. So the question is, when is this going to happen? When is God going to shake the heavens and the earth? And when is he going to restore the glory of his former temple? Some people today, they, they think that this actually refers to a literal temple in Jerusalem that's gonna be built. And so a lot of people put a lot of effort and time into making sure that Israel can build this new temple. When, when the New Testament refers to these kind of passages, it says this is not something that we should expect today, but it's always a reference to when Jesus comes again. It's always a reference when Jesus comes and we're told that he will one day turn this earth into his temple. It will be filled with his presence and filled with his glory. And we're told in Revelation 22, verse 21, that the glory and honor of all nations when Jesus comes again will come streaming in to the new heavens and the new earth and we will be the recipients of it as his children and as his citizens in his kingdom. So what God is saying is that is what I have in store for you right now. You want glory in this temple. You want glory right now. You want God's relief right now. You want God to meet your expectations right now. And God is saying, I am going to meet those expectations. I am going to meet those expectations, but I'm going to do it when my son Jesus comes again. Think about it this way. If I came to you, right, you come up to me after the service, don't take me up on this, but, but if we did this, I said, hey, I will give you $1 now or in 10 years, I will give you a million dollars. Which one would you choose? You would choose the $1, right? And then you'd go invest it into a low yield bond, right? That's the smart thing to do. 
No, I'm just kidding, right? That's, that's, the answer is obvious. You would take the million dollars. Or you remember that Stanford marshmallow experiment, right? They put one marshmallow in front of a kid and they said, hey, we're going to leave you for 10 minutes. And if you don't eat this marshmallow, then I'm going to come back and you can have two marshmallows. And you see the kids, they're suffering, they're writhing. They're like, oh my goodness, this is the longest 10 minutes of my life. That is what God is saying he's going to do, except it's not going to be two marshmallows. It's going to be like lucky charms, right? There is going to be marshmallows upon marshmallows upon marshmallows. God will meet all of our expectations and more. All the glory of the world, of the nations, will stream into the new heavens and the new earth. And how do we know that that's true? Because remember that scripture verse that Aaron read at the beginning of the worship service? It was the words of Paul to the Romans. Remember these words? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, what Paul is saying is you are God's child. He is with you. He has a purpose for your suffering and your hardship and your disappointment. Even though in this world you want to escape the wilderness, go back into slavery, he is saying, no, I'm with you. You're my child. I will see you through it. And if children, then heirs, this is verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. What he's saying is just as Jesus didn't stay in a lowly form, he resurrected from the dead, is now in heaven, and he is now glorified. We too are heirs of God. If you have faith in Jesus, you are an heir of God and everything that belongs to Jesus, all that glory belongs to you. But there's one contingency, isn't there? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Friends, what Jesus is saying, or what Paul is saying here and what Haggai is telling these people is we need to walk by faith. In the, in, in the, in the face of unmet expectations, we have to walk by faith because here's what we do. We usually say, I'm looking at my life right now and I have A, B, C, D, and E things going that are not how I expected and they're all wrong. (laughs) And from that, we say, God must be this way. Because of all my circumstances, God must be not good or God must be not kind or God must not love me. But what Haggai is saying here is no, flip the order. God is faithful. God is good. God has called you his child. And from that perspective, then A, B, C, and D. God is a God who promises to one day shake the nations and give you all of your unmet expectations to give you everything that you long for in this life. And that's not the only promise. There's one more promise here. It's really brief. It's Haggai chapter two, verse nine. Haggai says this, and in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. I will give peace. Jesus in his first coming did give peace. Jesus in his first coming gave us peace with God. He died on the cross to bear the wrath of God against our sins so that we might not have God as our enemy. 
And now we are children of God because Jesus died in our place. And if we place our faith in him, we have this assurance. We are no longer under God's judgment. We are now under God's favor. But we still have a world full of sin, a world full of brokenness. And we're promised that when Jesus comes again, he will not only remove the penalty of sin, but he will fully and finally remove the presence of sin from everything in this world, everything that taints God's good gifts in this world. And he will give us the glory and longing of our hearts fully and finally. I'm gonna close on this story. Have you guys uh, seen this this new hashtag? It's, uh, It's trending right now. It's hashtag color for all. Anybody seen this one? So it's not trending. Okay, all right. I see that now. All right, hashtag color for all. It's wonderful. I encourage everybody to go home buy the Jody Erickson Tata books. And now you got to watch these color for all videos. One of mine is this favorite thing. What color for all does is color for all is this company that makes sunglasses that helps people who are colorblind finally see the world from the perspective that people who can see color, see it. And there's this one video is a video of a 66 year old man. And he's got his family gathered around him. He's sitting outside and he's kind of curious as to why do they have me outside? Why aren't we opening presents inside? But he's, he's sitting there and he unwraps it and he opens the box and, you know, he's seen everything before. He's been on the earth 66 years, right? He's received every gift imaginable. This one can't be all that special. And he pulls it out and he's like, oh, these are sunglasses. Oh, these are cool. And he opens them up and they start explaining what the sunglasses do to him. And so a little bit hesitant, he finally puts the sunglasses on and he just out of sheer emotion puts his face into his legs and starts weeping because he's finally seeing what he had longed for for 66 years is finally coming into focus. He's finally receiving the very thing that he was withheld from. Can you imagine his entire life? He's thinking, why can't I see color? Why can't I receive this? Why can't I have this? And finally, for the very first time, he puts on these glasses and he gets to see the world from the perspective we sometimes take for granted. Friends, what God wants to show you is he wants you to see the world from this perspective. In the face of discouragement, in the face of the wilderness, in the face of hardship and trial, in the face of unmet expectations, what God is saying is, look back. I am faithful just as I saw my son through this world and he suffered, bled and died and came as no one has expected. Look back to my faithfulness. I am being faithful with you as well to make you more like my son. And also listen to my promises. The world as you experience it now will not stay this way forever. God will ultimately one day bring his kingdom and we as his children and co-heirs with Christ will receive what God has for us all of our expectations will be met. Marshmallows. (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are not deserving and we're not worthy. We're not worthy of these good things that you promise us. Lord, we're not worthy of your faithfulness. God, we are sinful and we do not deserve your faithfulness, but you and your love for us sent your only son to come as no one is expected, to come to shed his blood and die so that we might know that you are a faithful God who loves us and wants to make us holy and wants to make us more like your son Christ. And God, we are not worthy of these future promises. We deserve an eternity apart from you. But thank you to Jesus who will one day come again
and restore this world and help us see finally the beauty and the glory and the good things we all long for here now. Lord, we pray that you would apply these things to our heart. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.